Welcome, willing victims, to the 2020 Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades Halloween Special. I'm Rob Knorr. And I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And soon you will hear from our fellow hosts, Michael Ernett and Kyle Graper. Tonight, my ghoulish compatriots and I will each be regaling you with a tale of terror, murder, and mayhem from the Steel City and its salubrious environs. We will explore how our fair city and its region, for all of its charms and reputation as a friendly and welcoming place, hides a dark undercurrent of evil and the supernatural. We begin with the terrifying tale of the Pittsburgh Demon House. Brownsville Road stretches for many miles through Pittsburgh's South Hills, but in the Brentwood area, there stands along that avenue a home that has, had, has held untold terror within its confines. Some say the house is cursed because it was built on the site of a 1792 massacre of a family by members of the local Shawnee Nation desperate to hold back the tide of white settlement. Others think it to be a thin place, a spot where the barrier between our realm and what lies beyond has been breached or is more porous and allows through what should be kept on the other side. Still others believe that when H.P. Malik built the large three-story, 12-room mansion that stands on the site in 1909, the property was cursed by an Eastern European immigrant laborer who was owed money by the stingy property owner, was tired of his unending abuse and demeaning tirades, and was jealous of the man's wealth and beautiful wife. So he used his knowledge of ancient ritual magic to open a pathway between our world and the next, letting in things that should not be here. There are also stories that the home was used by one Dr. Mahan for performing hundreds of illegal backroom abortions in the first half of the 20th century, which led to the deaths of dozens of unfortunate local women and the disposal of the babies in a great coal furnace in the basement, adding to the spiritual buildup present on the property. Three owners came and went with little fanfare and no public acknowledgement of what may have been lurking in the home, but in 1988, Bob Cranmer, his wife Lisa, and their four children relocated to Pittsburgh and set their sights on the big old house. Kramer was surprised when the owner seemed very anxious to sell and move out, taking his first lowball offer without any hesitation. During their first walkthrough, his young son, Bobby Jr., only three at the time, wandered off by himself and was found on the front staircase crying and hyperventilating, panicking at the sight of what he could only call the bad man. Both Bob and Lisa noted that the house had an eerie and unsettling air to it, but chalked it all up to the house's age, size, and unfamiliarity. When he asked the previous owner if there was anything wrong with the house, he got the unsettling response of, The house is fine, and there have been several Catholic masses conducted in the living room and in the big room upstairs. Later that spring, Bob found a metal box containing several Catholic religious items buried in the front yard. Calling the previous owners once again, he asked one more time if anything was wrong with the home, but was once more told that the house was fine, but that he needed to put the box and the items back where they were found immediately. Upon digging up these items, something in the house became active. The Grammers felt constantly like they were being watched by someone or something, and had a constant feeling of being surrounded by the presence of other people, like being in the middle of a busy party, but you couldn't see or hear anyone else, like they were merely tolerated visitors instead of the owners of the home. Grammers' mother, a practicing Catholic, suggested that they have a priest come in and bless the house. The priest did come and said the usual blessings bestowed on a new home, but after his visit, what felt like a distant and uncaring presence would soon become malevolent. The first sign something was wrong was the change in the children. They would refuse to sleep in their rooms, demanded the lights stay on, and their personalities changed, going from bright and cheerful little kids to introverted and fearful. Poltergeist activity began as well, with strange bumps, 
knocks and disembodied footsteps making themselves heard consistently, and the pull chains on the closet light bulbs wrapping themselves around the bulbs despite the fact that no one would go in the closet all day and the kids were too short to reach the chains. Lights would turn on and off by themselves. Water would begin to run from faucets when no one was in the room to turn them on. Items would be knocked off of high shelves unreachable by the kids and neither parent had knocked them off accidentally. Books began to fly off of shelves without being touched in front of the entire gathered family and furniture moved on its own. Rooms would, be, would become without explanation roasting hot or ice cold. Soon the bumps and knocks became a repeated pounding like the sound of massive fists trying to break through the walls themselves. Rooms would fill with the smell of rotting flesh or sulfur. Long parallel scratches appearing to all who saw them like the marks of massive claws began to appear on the wooden walls. Whispered voices, speaking a language not meant to be uttered by the human tongue, could be heard throughout the house, as well as the crying of infants, when none of the Grandmer children were home and or all were present and not making any sound. This crying seemed to center from the heart of the basement, home to that great coal furnace. Several guests claimed to see the ethereal apparition of a woman in late 1700s dress, perhaps one of the victims of the brutal massacre on the property. In the 1990s, as Cranmer became a well-known city councilman and county commissioner, the atmosphere in the house went from uncomfortable to oppressive to downright evil. The family began to hear bestial roaring coming from inside the house. Crucifixes and rosaries that had been hung by religious friends and family members were found tossed about and broken, with one hefty metal cross found crumpled, scorched, and half-melted like a discarded beer can in a campfire. Then, with distressing regularity, a thick, red mixture with the consistency of blood and torn flesh, hot to the touch, began leaking down the walls, and pools of the same ghoulish material began appearing on the floors. Finally, the Cranmers began seeing the hulking, shadowy form of some creature standing in the halls, in the corners of the rooms, or at the foot of their beds, watching them as the oppressive energy built to a breaking point. Then the true attack started. Bob and Lisa would be shoved, several times nearly being knocked down the house's grand stairs by an unseen force that left bruises and marks on their skin. Long, painful scratches began appearing on not just the parents, but the children as well. With no occasion of having bumped into some piece of furniture or catching the sharp corner of some appliance, the deep cuts in the family's flesh was accompanied by burns and strange blotches, some of them taking the form of upside-down crosses in a mockery of the holy symbols placed around the house to ward off the evil presence. The attacks got so bad against the children that one of their shared bedrooms, known as the Blue Room, became a no-go area within the house, the children refusing to enter and now sleeping in their parents' room at night. Bob never entered the room without carrying a crucifix and saying a prayer or reading a passage of scripture before he entered. At some point, the demonic presence made itself known. The Cranmers began to hear a deep, guttural voice throughout the house, growling and snarling and uttering a horrifying laugh. One name began to make itself heard over and over again in the demon's whispers. Molech. 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 Both the Lesser Key of Solomon and Paradise Lost describe Molech as a lord of hell, in command of legions of demonic soldiers with a cruel appetite for the sacrifice of children to be cut across the throat and then cast into a great furnace. Milton's text reads, quote, First Molech, horrid king besmeared with blood of human sacrifice and parents' tears through for the noise of drums and timbrels loud, their children's cries unheard that passed through fire to his grim idol. 
Perhaps that's why once Molak made his terrible presence known, the focus of the attacks seemed to shift solely to the children. Kramer and his wife would go to check on the children in whatever room they would now be sleeping in, and would find the hulking shadow standing at the foot of the children's beds, staring at their sleeping forms with baleful, glowing red eyes. Kramer's younger son, David, would routinely wake from horrific nightmares to find long, parallel scratches along his chest, always in groups of three as if mocking the Holy Trinity invoked in the family's attempts to ward off the attacks. Their eldest son, Bobby, now grown older, would wear his crucifix to sleep, only to find it removed and on the other side of the room when he awoke, its clasp still closed and the chain neatly curled up. Finally, one day in 2003, Bobby found the cross on the floor in the morning, having been bent in half as if placed in a vice and worked with pliers. The family was reaching the breaking point. Lisa and two of the children experienced such serious emotional issues that they suffered full breakdowns and had to be hospitalized. One night, Bobby was thrown across the room by an unseen force, and when his father went to help him up, his son physically attacked him, with Bob describing his son in the moment as having, quote, lost all life behind his eyes. The noises he made weren't human noises. Something else was inside my kid. Bob would be arrested that night, and although the charges would be dropped, it spelled the beginning of the downward slope of his political career. And that wasn't all the family suffered that night, however. When the family awoke the next morning, Lisa's aunt, who had been staying with the family, was found dead in her bed. And although authorities didn't suspect any foul play, no official cause of death was ever determined, and was merely listed for the healthy, vibrant woman as, quote, natural causes. The attacks continued for three more years. Finally, in 2004, after spending 16 years dealing with the presence in the house, the Cranmers had had enough. The moment came when Cranmer's infant grandson was picked up out of his playpen, in full view of the family, and tossed across the living room, leaving bruises in the shape of massive hands and a blotchy burn on the child's chest, vaguely shaped like an upside-down cross. Using his political connections, Bob called in the bishop of the Diocese of Pittsburgh, who assigned a team of clergy to exercise the house. For two years, the team would come to the house, holding the appropriate rituals, trying bit by bit to do battle with the demanding entity and make the home inaccessible to whatever forces were at work, and to shut the door that had been opened. Local media and nationally broadcast paranormal investigation programs got word of the activity, and the house featured on several different shows and in articles across the country. Finally, in February of 2006, after a 24-month battle, the activity in the house ceased. All was quiet, but the damage had been done. Lisa and three of the four children continued to suffer psychological issues as a result of their experiences, and the Cramer's marriage didn't survive much longer beyond the point of the exorcisms. But Bob Cramer wrote a book about his experiences and continues to own the house, saying that there had been no activity since 2006. The home has recently reopened to reservations as a charming Victorian bed and breakfast, and Cramer has two rules with his guests. No ghost hunters and no Ouija boards. Is the home still quiet? Has the pathway to something not of this earth been shut, as Cranmer claims? Or is the insidious presence merely waiting, waiting to make itself known once more, to bring untold evil and darkness to the heart of Pittsburgh? <laughs> we now present Chris Miller with the tale of the Pittsburgh Poisoner. Unlike our other stories, steeped in urban mythology and romanticized by time and retelling, the story of Martha Grinder, Pittsburgh's most notorious female serial killer, is entirely bone-chillingly true. 
The story of Martha Grinder begins in 1859 when she moves from Louisville along with her husband George to settle into a meager home near the point of Pittsburgh, the confluence of the Ohio, Allegheny, and Monongahela rivers. George, described as slow-witted, was a coal miner that came to Pittsburgh following the boom of fossil fuels in Appalachia. Martha, it would soon be revealed, was much more cunning than her husband. She began taking odd jobs, such as caretaker and maid, but rose rather quickly through Pittsburgh's socioeconomic ranks. In less than a year, she and her husband moved to Allegheny City, which is now known as Pittsburgh's North Side, moving their belongings across the Ninth Street Bridge. Not one of the identical three sister suspension bridges, but a covered, wooden, and, quote, entertaining promenade before it was replaced by the Rachel Carson Bridge that Pittsburgh knows today. A poor coal miner's wife had begun to introduce herself into Pittsburgh society adorned in fine clothes and jewelry just months after arriving, but nobody seemed to ask any questions. Known by her neighbors as very friendly and personable, suspicions began to arise after the sudden and violent illness of Mary Carruthers. Mary and her husband James were a young couple that lived next door. As Mary's bouts of sudden illness worsened, Martha would frequent the home to help James take care of his rapidly declining wife. At times, Jane would note that Mary's condition would improve, and she would complain of thirst, but seldom had an appetite. When she did eat, he remarked that her condition would worsen shortly after, and then he fell ill as well. Mary Carruthers succumbed to her illness on August 1st, 1865. After no longer requiring the services and the dismissal of Martha Grinder, James began to improve, and his suspicion had been raised enough to alert the authorities. At James' request, a postmortem was performed, and his wife's body was found to be riddled with arsenic. Detectives from Pittsburgh soon uncovered a trail of similar deaths surrounding Martha Grinder as she made her way through Pittsburgh, including one Jane Buchanan, who had been the maid at the previous residence. James' family had sent for her things after her untimely death, and were shocked to discover that her cash, jewelry, and other valuables had been suspiciously absent. In fact, the lack of cash was the first warning that things may not be as innocent as they had seemed. Jane had saved $40 to defray the cost of visiting her aunt that lived out of state. She even had a friend help her count the money just to make sure it would be adequate. Then, without warning or explanation, her trip was postponed. That night, Jane began vomiting. The night of February 24th, Mr. Grinder sent for her belongings to be moved to their home on 9th Street, Hand Street at the time, and it was reluctantly sent over to the ailing Jane, who, it was uneasily assumed, required its contents. Two days later, Jane was dead. By the time her chest was retrieved by her family, it had been empty of all valuables. In fact, it did not even include a dress in which to bury her, but the family was relieved when Martha Grinder graciously donated one of her own for the funeral, a dress that fit Jane Buchanan perfectly. The missing valuables and sudden onset of illness did not sit well with the Buchanans, who convinced the coroner's office to assemble a trial. The jury found that the cause of death to be entirely natural, though it would appear that Jane's family was correct to be suspicious of the grinders. When news of the Carruthers had broken, at the insistence of her friends and family, the Buchanan case was reopened, Jane's body was exhumed. Though Jane had only worked at the grinder residence for four days, the acute stomach pain that killed her was discovered to have also been arsenic poisoning. Martha was tried for murder and calmly admitted to killing the two females, but her list of victims was suspected to be much, much longer. Her husband's brothers, Samuel, a veteran of the Battle of Gettysburg who died while on medical leave at his brother's home in December 1864, as well as his brother Jeremiah who died a month earlier in November 1864. With no more immediate family, George now inherited the entirety of his family's wealth. Mrs. J.M. Johnston, Mary Carruthers' sister, as well as Mrs. Marguerite Smith, another former neighbor, 
had also died under mysterious circumstances. Mary was also suspected, but denied involvement, in the suspicious illness and death of up to three other adults and one child, though her confessions to the murder of Carruthers and the Buchanan, <coughs> Buchanan ultimately resulted in her sentence of execution to be carried out January 19, 1866. At her sentencing, she was declared entirely sane and fit to be tried, and there were reports of her unsettlingly calm demeanor when she had confessed her guilt. Her crimes were so sensational that her trial was recorded in a quickly published book, which was not an uncommon practice for the remarkable, often violent trials of the era, and the execution was covered by a reporter from the New York Times. The article mentions her firm and elastic step and apparent indifference to everything around her, with the same haughty expression she held when she told the jury, I love to see death in all of its forms and phases and left no opportunity to gratify my taste for such sights. Could I have had my own way? I probably would have done more. Martha Grinder was hanged. Pittsburgh had only ever executed two women, and Martha Grinder, the Pittsburgh poisoner, was the last. Today, Martha's grave can be found near her old home at Uniondale Cemetery off of Brighton Road. Pittsburgh's Borgia, Martha Grinder, lived a quiet life as a friendly, unassuming neighbor who walked the streets and sidewalks, carrying death in her pocket. She became Pittsburgh's first entry in the notorious golden age of poisoning, but she would not be the last. But perhaps that story is best left for another time. <laughs> we now present Michael Arnett with the Library of the Dead. Connellsville, Pennsylvania, at the turn of the 20th century, could best be described as a boom town. The coal plants full of toil during the day, the streets were filled with all of the trappings of big city life at night. The residents of the ever-expanding borough had been treated to the luxuries of theaters, sports venues, and high-end restaurants. The local council had even had the revenue to purchase and build one of the largest public high schools in the state outside metropolitan communities like Pittsburgh and Johnstown. Such was the life of a town so vast that the entire bituminous coal belt stretching from upstate New York to eastern Kentucky is to this day referred to as the Connellsville Belt. This up-and-coming town gave lifeblood to Pittsburgh's steel industry with its coke production, and the local politicians would not allow anyone to forget it. It is in this age that we find our tale of corruption and apathy so shocking on its face, and it still lasts with us today. According to the local tourism guide of the Laurel Highlands, Connellsville Free Public Library opened its doors on April 30, 1903, due to the generosity of Andrew Carnegie, who believed that education is the cornerstone of success. This was the one-time gift with a promise from Connellsville that the borough would provide for continued upkeep of the building. It sounds pretty innocuous because this was something that, as most of you know, was a common action for the now philanthropic Carnegie. There were literally hundreds of libraries and music halls that bear Carnegie's name, the most famous being Carnegie Hall in New York City. But this particular library was different. You see, in 1899, seeing other towns receiving grants, residents of Connellsville approached Andrew Carnegie to have a library built in their bus bustling borough. Andrew Carnegie approved the plan with the caveat that the library be located near the high school, presumably to encourage students to utilize it regularly. And that's where the problem begins. The only available land that met the criteria was the old Connell graveyard. And by old, we are using the language of the newspaper of record at the time. This cemetery was old in 1900. 
In fact, most residents were now burying their loved ones in Hillview Cemetery, which is the one still in existence today. So the Collinsville School Board, thinking more about funding than the fight that was about to come, stepped in and purchased the land. This obviously did not sit well with the families of the dead buried peacefully in their plots. Just as you have today, the school board had to publicly post notice their intent to purchase the property. In that notice, in the Weekly Courier, dated 15 December 1899, the board made notice that they intended to, quote, take use and occupy that certain lot of ground in the rear of the public school lot and the land of the heirs of John L. Hogg, known as Old Connell Graveyard. Further, the notice stipulated, in the intervening time, any person having any relative or kindred buried in such burial place may designate where the same are buried and make demand of said board or president thereof that the remains of said relative or kindred be removed therefrom and interred in a place to be designated by them or in one chosen by said board. So great was the ensuing furor that the board set up a special meeting to discuss the problem. According to the Courier, the meeting on January 25, 1900 was intended by many people in the community. It was determined that only the board could contract to move the bodies, and the president of the board even suggested that $2,000 be set aside for the purpose of settling the family affairs. As with all politics, by the time the dust cleared, the board voted to pay each family a mere $20 in damages. Not a small sum at the time, but certainly not enough to exhume and reinter a body, much less multiple bodies. The rest of the cost would be placed squarely on the families of the deceased. Some families simply didn't have the wherewithal to make this happen, and some refused to remove their loved ones simply on principle. Finally, as some of the exhumations began, it was discovered that in an era without concrete burial vaults in a very old cemetery, many of the bodies had degraded to the point where it was simply too difficult to move them. Undeterred by these issues, the Collinsville School Board was not about to let go of their opportunity, and the building was constructed on the site come what may. The Weekly Courier reported on 20th December 1901 that, quote, the end of three graves can be seen on the side of the street which was recently opened between Mountain Alley and Pittsburgh Street for the Carnegie Free Library. At the time the graves were opened and the coffins removed, a large silver maple stood in the cemetery, and when the street was cut through, the graves were found directly beneath the tree, the roots of which had forced the coffin lid several inches into the ground. Several nails were picked from the ground, which had held the sides of the coffins to their ends. On they worked until it was completed in 1903, where it still stands and serves as the community library today, complete with bodies underneath the books. Now, normal horror movie tropes teach us that you shouldn't build structures of public access over graveyards, especially to the consternation of the living. This site isn't much different. Library workers, since its opening, regularly report hearing footsteps in the upper halls and within the stairwells when no one else is in the building. On at least one occasion, an actual apparition in the form of a young woman was witnessed by at least two employees, in the 1980s no less. This is no early 20th century fear of the unknown. This happened in the age of the 24-hour news cycle. 
There have been no reports of symmetrical book stacking. However, books have been placed in specific areas and found to be disturbed or moved later on. Having personally been to this place, I can say before knowing this story that there is a creepy kind of air in the building that at the time I noticed but I could not ignore. Our story's main source and Connellsville amateur historian Bob Lubick has admitted that he's felt the same eerie presence. Several paranormal groups have been to the site and report seeing strange orbs that meander its stacks and halls. So if you have a chance, go. Read a book. And if you're lucky, perhaps you will sit down next to the disembodied spirit whose rest was disturbed as a matter of simple politics. <laughs> and finally, we have Kyle Graper with The House the Devil Built. Where now sits parking lots, overpasses, and warehouses only a few hundred yards from Heinz Field, legend tells us of a presence far more sinister and troubling than blacked-out tailgaters and fast food joints. Where three rivers meet, linking east to west as the nation grew into adolescence, a different kind of gateway stood nearby, an opening to hell itself in the ornate mansion that would be known in time as the house the devil built. Returning to Pittsburgh in the 1860s after making a fortune in the South during the Reconstruction following the American Civil War, Charles Wright Congelier set to building a family estate at 1129 Ridge Avenue in the Manchester neighborhood of Pittsburgh's north side. Here, overlooking Pittsburgh's three rivers, Charles lived with his life Lida and their maid Essie, and regularly hosted the city's well-to-do for elaborate parties in the massive mansion. The levity on Bridge Avenue would be short-lived, however. As was the style at the time, Charles had been engaged in an affair with Essie. When Lida discovered her husband's infidelity, overhearing the two in a closed bedroom, she flew into a rage, retrieved a butcher's knife and meat cleaver from the kitchen, and ambushed the pair knives akimbo as they exited the room. Several days later, neighbors discovered Lida planted on a rocking chair with the severed head of Essie clutched in her lap. The house remained empty until 1892, when a railroad company purchased the home to be used as apartments for its workers. Almost immediately, the residual energy from Lida's crime made itself known. The disembodied sounds of crying women and screaming, and most disturbingly, the sound of a rocking chair where there was none, ensured no workers remained tenants for long. Just two years later, the railroad gave up the estate. The Conjolier Mansion's next resident, one Dr. Adolf Brunbrechter, would do little to improve its growing reputation as a house of horrors. On August 12, 1901, neighbors were startled by the sounds of a woman's screams, immediately followed by an explosion shattering the structure's windows. When police arrived, they discovered a deeply disturbing scene. Six women, each decapitated, their severed heads hooked up to electrical equipment. It seems the good doctor had been experimenting with cheating death, his machines attempting to keep the brain tissue alive in a horrific attempt at immortality. In the years to follow, the house's reputation would make it a destination for those pursuing the occult. Mediums were drawn to its walls to experience objects moving on their own, and to feel the occupying dreadful presence. 
it is told that even legendary inventor Thomas Edison, taking a break from stealing others' ideas and executing elephants, chose the site to experiment with his never fully realized spirit telephone. In the 1920s, the home again found itself being used for employing tenement, this time for the Equitable Gas Company. The residents here, too, heard disembodied noises, but also fell victim to two unexplained deaths among their number. Police would claim the tragedy is accident, but few doubted the house itself was guilty. It would turn out Equitable Gas would be the last owner of the Conway-Jolier Mansion, and by their own doing. On November 14, 1927, a huge cylindrical gasometer on Pittsburgh's north side, at the time the largest in the world, sprang a leak. Equitable deployed a repair team, armed with acetylene torches. Predictably, the tank detonated mid-fix. Among the 28 dead, 500 injured, and $4 million of damage, the nearby Conjolier house was decimated. Where once stood the elaborate stone walls, now sat a crater. Hell had reclaimed its house. We thank you, friends, for joining us on our look into the ghoulish side of the Steel City. We hope you enjoyed our journey into the more horrific side of life in our town. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can email us at trrpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at podcasttrr. Follow us on Instagram at trrpod and find us on Facebook and YouTube by simply searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you would like to financially support the podcast and get access to our roundtable about the stories we told you tonight, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod. We hope everyone has a safe holiday weekend and celebrates responsibly. Happy Halloween, everybody and hold fast.